just the uh, the truth in that is just so awesome. Uh, I always enjoy watching that and showing that. It's just, again, a great reminder that while we have not always um, been lovable, we've not always loved God with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, um, he has never, ever wavered uh, in his love for us. His love has never ceased flowing um, over us. And so, again, it's just an incredible truth uh, that no matter what we've been, no matter how unfaithful we have been, it does not affect the faithfulness of God. And so it's just, a, again, a great reminder. And that really is, you know, at the, at the heart of intimacy with God. It is, just as it is in any relationship, to be fully known and fully loved in being fully known. That, that is the core of intimacy. And God knows us better than ourselves. He, he, he fully knows us. And even in the fullness of that knowledge, his love for you cannot be any greater uh, than it is now because his love is always at its greatest toward us. And so it, it's just, that, that is the core of intimacy. Um, again, just w- when you can when you can fully reveal, just fully disclose uh, everything about you, the good, the bad, the ugly, and then there's somebody on the other end of that that is able just to love you in spite of that. Um, those shortcomings, those faults, those failures. Again, that is, that's at the core of that. Um, Janie and I uh, were uh, gone this weekend. We attended a marriage retreat in uh, Branson, Missouri, uh, through Gary Smalley's um, retreat center down there in Branson. And uh, just the one thing that they they just kept pounding away um, was just uh, so much of what I've been teaching as we kind of talked about intimacy. And and the one thing they said was that um, as long as there is a heart connection... Um, between you and your spouse, intimacy will naturally flow from that. You don't have to create it. It's just a natural byproduct of just having the, the sharing of your heart toward one another, caring for your spouse's heart, your spouse cares for your heart. And they just kind of talked about, again, just that, that heart connection intimacy will just naturally flow from that. And the same is true. I mean, there, uh, you could pretty much take everything they, they said pertaining to marriage and you could apply it to your relationship um, with the Lord. And, and again, whenever there is a heart connection, uh, and we, we've, we've talked about that is the core of intimacy, is when your heart connects with the heart of God. When that, when that connection happens, Intimacy will flow from that. It, 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 it's just a natural byproduct. You don't have to try to go and create intimacy. All you've got to do is just be able to open your heart uh, to the Father and, and just to allow the Father to open, to reveal uh, his heart towards you. And when that connection happens, intimacy will flow from that. And so, um, so much, and you know, and I just was reminded over and over and over again this weekend why Paul said marriage is uh, the greatest illustration that, that we will have on this earth 
uh, that, that illustrates uh, the kind of relationship God longs for um, with, with, uh, with his children, his sons and his daughters. Uh, there's no greater example of that than marriage. And that's why, again, uh, we are called uh, the bridegroom and Christ is the, is the groom. Um, and, and he's coming uh, one day uh, for his bride. Uh, and that's us. And so again, there's just, there's, there is a reason that Paul used uh, the uh, covenant of marriage and said that is the greatest uh, example um, uh, that uh, we can have here on this, in this earth uh, to really illustrate the kind of relationship God longs and desires to have with each one of us. So um, it was good. It was good. And I'll be honest with you, um, you know, it was, it was one of those things um, that, um, and, and I think this is kind of just a guy thing, but I was really, really just nervous and I was kind of really hesitant and kind of anxious, you know, about going, um, you know, just because I, it's just, you know, one of those things where you just, you know, Janie was just all excited, you know, and she's wanted to do this, uh, go down there for years, and you know, I kind of drug my feet on that. And the cool thing was, was the one thing that I was kind of dreading was I thought, oh, we're just, we're going to probably be like the oldest couple there. And we've been married 20 years, and so I kind of just thought, you know, a marriage retreat, speaking from the heart, it's probably just going to be a lot of young couples. Um, and we got down there, and I'm telling you what, there were people people in there that had been married 45 years. And I was just like, wow, I, that was just awesome. Um, and got to meet uh, a lot of those couples. And, and I just said to him, I'm so, I'm just like so wowed uh, that you're here because, you know, I just would have thought, you know, at this stage in your marriage, you, know, you just kind of figure, oh, yeah, you know, it is what it is, and you kind of just learn to live like that, and they're, oh, no, 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 we, we never stop, and they were sharing with me all the different places that they go, and so it was really kind of cool to see people, you know, that have been married that long um, that, that uh, were there doing that, so again, it was just, it was just awesome, um, and uh, learned a lot, um, you know, and just trying to figure out how did I get this far? How did I get this far along in marriage without knowing that? Um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I, I've been, you know, we've, I've been honest with you guys. You know, some of you maybe are new, but I've never, we've never ever stood up here. Janie, I never ever would stand up here and tell you that, you know, that or we would never want you to think that we don't have problems in our marriage. Good night, nurse. I mean, it's, uh, we, you know, the, one of the ways I'll describe this week is if any of you have ever broken a bone and that bone has not healed properly, what do they got to do? Rebreak it, reset it. We had, some, we had some things in our marriage that we thought were healed correctly and come to discover this weekend were not. And so uh, some of those things had to be rebroken and reset. And that was painful. Um, but, you know, you come out of it uh, a lot stronger. And so I would just encourage any of you... Um, you know, it's a, it's a great weekend. Um, it, I mean, I, I just couldn't speak more highly um, of the conference and would just encourage you. It's uh, National Institute for Marriage. Uh, I'm actually in conversations with them right now about bringing that conference here to Mason City. Um, so uh, we're, I'm really uh, looking forward to uh, having conversations with them. I called them right away when we got back, and they had quite a bit of snow down there. So a lot of their workers, the people I needed to connect with, weren't there. So, But 
I'm really looking forward to being able to bring that um, here to Mason City. Um, I want to just kind of mention again really quickly, uh, Feast of Purim, if you've not gotten that, we're going to be doing that two weeks from tonight. It is coming quickly. <laughs> um, starting to feel the pressure of that. Um, but So if you've not gotten signed up for that yet, would encourage you to do that. Again, there's no cost to it. Uh, we just need to know numbers just so we have enough food, um, enough seating, um, and all of that. So if you've not seen this, they're out on the Welcome Center there. You can just kind of pick one up. Um, we're going to be kind of uh, uh, asking you to kind of go through and, and just read the, the story of Esther from the Old Testament. So we've got like a reading schedule in there. Um, so you'll start that um, would be um, February 26th. Is that next Wednesday or Thursday? Thursday, okay. So Thursday, you'll read chapter one of the book of Esther, and then the next day, the 27th chapter two, and so we've got like a, a schedule in here. And then um, two weeks from tonight, um, on that day seven, we'll do the final uh, reading, uh, chapter nine, verse 14 through chapter 10. We'll, we'll do that here um, together. Um, so this is just kind of a way for you to gradually work your way through uh, as a couple with your family. Um, I would encourage you, maybe if you've got young kids, uh, maybe try to find um, a Bible uh, that maybe has the story of Esther uh, in it that will be easily understood uh, by your children. Also, parents, uh, if, you, if you do use um, a translation and you've got younger kids, just be sensitive to some of the, there's, there can be some graphic things in there, you know, hangings and impaling and uh, that kind of thing. So you might want to just kind of be careful. Those might be just things you might want to just kind of skip over in the uh, telling of the story. So just be mindful um, of that. So again, uh, all of that is in, in the brochure here, so I would encourage you to pick that up if you've not yet done that and, and, and get registered um, for that. So again, I want to just go ahead and um, just, again, kind of uh, push a little further uh, into uh, talking about intimacy with God. And again, uh, it is uh, that one relationship, every one of us. I, I don't care who you are. I don't care what's your background. I don't care how far from God you've been, what you've done. I, I mean, you were created to experience with the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we were created for intimacy with God. We were created to have a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what the Bible calls eternal life. Did you know that? Oftentimes, we kind of think of eternal life as living forever somewhere. That's not eternal life. Eternal life um, it's what we were created for, and that is the sole purpose of intimately knowing and experiencing a deep, passionate relationship with the Godhead. And Jesus defines exactly what eternal life is in John 17, 3. Check this out. He says, this is eternal life that you may know, and that, that word there is experience, that you may know, um, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is eternal life, that you and I, that we would know and experience 
the Father and the Son. Eternal life, again, is not about just living forever somewhere. Rather, the essence of eternal life is increasing more and more in our understanding, our revelation, our experience of who God is. God longs and and he desires to want to reveal himself more and more to each one of us to, again, experience, to be able to enter in um, and, and to know a very deep, passionate, and intimate relationship with him. The last Wednesday evening, we kind of began talking about one of the pathways that God has chosen and really designed from the foundation of the earth in order to lead us or to bring us into that greater uh, experience and intimacy with himself, for for you and I to experience more and more of God's power. It's kind of like the the, the peeling of an an onion, only this is an eternal onion. I I mean, you'll never, ever get to the core of, of that, you're just going to keep peeling back layer after layer after layer of who God is. And again, this is the uh, revelation that the Apostle Paul uh, begins to share, and we were kind of talking uh, about one of the ways that we, we encounter and experience God is through embracing godly weakness. And so we kind of uh, left off with that last week. I said, you know, we're going to pick up with that this week. And here's what Paul shares about that in 2 Corinthians 12. There he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, we talked about that at, at length last week, he said, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored or begged the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. He said, for power is perfected in weakness. That, that is such a key phrase. For power is perfected in weakness. And Paul's response to that is most gladly or with great rejoicing. Therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And Paul says, therefore, and again, these these were the messengers of Satan that were sent to torment him. And Paul says, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, persecutions, difficulties. Again, we talked about what the Jews, religious leaders, were were doing to Paul because Paul was taking the message they believed was for the Jewish people only. Paul was taking that and, and giving and bringing salvation to the Gentiles. The Jews did not like that. You had to become a Jew in order to enter into that covenant. And Paul's saying, not anymore. God is pouring out upon the Gentiles, salvation upon the Gentiles. And so those messengers begin to come and they just begin to attack Paul with, again, the uh, insults, distresses, persecutions, with difficulties. And he said, for Christ's sake, For when I am weak, or when I embrace weakness, then I am strong. We kind of started talking last week that there are two types of 
of godly weakness that the New Testament refers to. And we see both of these lived out and exemplified in the life of Jesus, in the life of the Apostle Paul, and other great uh, devoted followers of Christ. That first type of godliness we started talking about last week is what we call that uh, voluntary weakness. And What comes under that voluntary weakness uh, in the scriptures is prayer, fasting. We can do that by living simple lives of contentment, by giving of our resources, our time, our money, our energy, um, serving and blessing the poor, the least among us, uh, serving and blessing our enemies, uh, blessing those who offend us. And again, this is, we call this voluntary weakness because we are choosing of our own free will to embrace, to take upon ourselves what I would call, these are spiritual disciplines, and believing that when we choose, again, of our own free will, to embrace and to take on these godly weaknesses, that like Paul, when we do that, the power of Christ will dwell in us. That's the reason we would be wise to to voluntarily choose to embrace that. There's no other way that the power of Christ is going to dwell on us than when we voluntarily choose to embrace these godly weaknesses. And so we left off with this because here's how the Apostle Paul captures the kingdom principle there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. He says, God has chosen. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Now, why does he do that? He does that so that no man has cause or reason to boast or brag before God. So that just as it is written, if you're going to boast, if you're going to brag, boast and brag in the Lord. I love what Paul says there. God has chosen. This is deliberate. This is by design. This is not an accident. This is how God has chosen to order and to work through in the kingdom of God. God has chosen voluntary weakness as the way to run his kingdom. Jesus embraced it. He lived his life and his ministry by this. And we must also embrace this if we are going to experience the power, presence, and strength in our lives and in our ministry. Now, last week we touched on the concept of prayer. Again, this is a voluntary thing. God is not going to force you to pray. You've got to choose to embrace This voluntary weakness, this is all impossible with me, but all things are possible with God. When it becomes impossible with you, possible through God, you are positioning yourself in, in, in voluntarily positioning yourself in a place of weakness to say, I can do nothing. 
without him. True, authentic, godly prayer will seem to a lot of people, and to us at times, it just seems foolish. Why do I have to ask God something he should already know I need? Because again, we're, we're, we're embracing. When we pray, we're embracing, we're taking that on. We're positioning ourselves before God in the way he has chosen to order and to work through his creation. So true, authentic, godly prayer, it's going to seem foolish to us. And it will look like to the unbelieving world that it is a complete waste of time. That's okay. Because God meant for it to be. Because he deliberately chooses the things the world would call foolish, the things the world would ascribe to as weak. God has chosen deliberately by design the foolish and weak things of his kingdom to shame the wise and the mighty. And again, when we embrace this, freely of our own free will, when we receive that, when we position ourselves before God in that, we are coming into agreement with God's choosing, his deliberate, intentional plan of using what may appear to others as foolish and weak as the way in which he is going to establish his power and strength in our lives, when we come into agreement with God's plan of of embracing godly weakness in these areas, you know what's gonna happen? He's gonna get the glory and not us. We're gonna boast in him and not in ourselves. When we voluntarily embrace godly weakness, let's talk about in the area of giving, of, of our resources. We are submitting. When you do that, what you're doing is you are placing the strength of your finances, of your resources, whatever those may be, your time, you are just literally placing that in the hands of God. And you are trusting him to lead and to guide you in how to use them to be a blessing to him and a blessing to others. And that's why God has established the kingdom principle of tithing. And tithing simply means we're taking a tenth of what God has blessed us with and we're just giving it back. We're just sowing that back into the kingdom. Now again, God has a deliberate, intentional plan for tithing. You want to know what that is? Deuteronomy 14.23 spells it out more clearly than any other scripture in the Bible regarding tithing. Look what it says. The purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your lives. If you don't have that marked in your Bible, mark that in your Bibles. That's why tithing is important. God doesn't need, he doesn't want your money. The purpose of tithing is to teach us, to reinforce in us the need to put God first always in our lives. 
Every time you tithe, every time you come into agreement with that kingdom principle, what you are doing is you are establishing and you are demonstrating in a very real, tangent way that God is first in your life. That he is the most important person in your life. Every time you tithe, you are basically inviting the power of Christ to rest upon you and your offering. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Every time you tithe, every time you give an offering. Now, an offering is, is above and beyond the tithe. So you can give 10%, that's the tithe. If you give more than 10%, that becomes the offering. And so he says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. So every time you tithe, you are honoring God in a way he designed and purposed to show him honor. Well, that's just ridiculous. That's just so dumb. Yeah, it is. God designed it that way. He's going to use the foolish things of the world to confound the ways of the wise. I remember one time somebody in our family found out um, that, that we tithed in, in our church. And they asked us, well, what is that? So we explained to them what the tithe was. They were just absolutely dumbfounded. You give 10% of your money to the church? And we said, yeah, oftentimes it's more than that. They just could not get over that. Just how, how foolish that is. Um, and again, yes, it was designed by God that way from the foundation of the earth. God is simply saying, I have made many, many ways for you to honor me. And here is one of those many ways with your wealth. Wise people say, God, if this is the way you designed me, if this is the system that you have designed purposely, deliberately for me to show honor and reverence to you, and I want to honor you, then I am voluntarily choosing to leverage and use my finances in such a way that I can honor you. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says, teach those who are rich in this world. And again, you know what? We are, we are if you did just a comparison of what we have to, to others around the world, we are abundantly wealthy. E even if you kind of feel that you're maybe in the, in the lower middle class or maybe even poverty, you're still richer than the vast majority of people in the world. And so Timothy says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. And he says, by do, this is cool, by doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. 
Like I said, God doesn't need you and I to tithe or to give offerings because God needs the money. He doesn't. Whether you know it or not, he already owns it all. Everything you have is simply on loan from him. God doesn't call us to tithe because he needs it. We tithe because in that act of tithing, we are making a voluntary, we've chosen to make a declaration that God, everything I have is because you have provided it. You own everything we have, and God, I recognize I am simply the steward. I am simply the manager of what you have given and bestowed upon me. I love David prayed this prayer in 1 Chronicles 29, 14. He said, everything we have has come from you, and we only give you what is already yours. Every time you tithe and give back to God a tenth of what you've received, you're saying amen to David's prayer there. Every time we tithe and give a portion of our wealth, financial resources back to God, you know what else you're doing? You're weakening and you are breaking the grip and the power of materialism, which is so rampant in our culture. You're breaking the power and the grip of selfishness, of self-centered living, increasing and expanding our capacity for the power of Christ to rest upon our lives our finances in greater and greater dimension. This is the idea behind voluntary embracing godly weakness. It's so that you and I can experience more and more of God's power, his presence, his strength, and blessing in our lives. We take the godly position of voluntary weakness in order to become strong that the power of Christ would dwell in us. Let me just shift to another one of those areas of voluntary weakness, and that's through fasting. Now, I know for a lot of people, just mentioning that word, just people immediately start shutting you off. They're kind of tuning you out. And let me assure you, I understand exactly what that word conjures up for a lot of people. First time I was ever introduced the whole concept of fasting. Uh, while I was a junior, uh, in junior high school, I was in junior high youth ministry at our Lutheran church uh, there in Davenport, Iowa. And we were invited uh, to partake in an experience over a weekend. It began on a Friday night, and, and we were uh, raising money um, for hungry people, and so what we were going to do was we were going to enter into the experience to know what it was to experience or to know hunger. And so the goal was was that you showed up on Friday night at the church, and you stayed the weekend, and there was no food. And so this was my my first uh, experience. It was really kind of to allow us to kind of empathize with those around the world who were experiencing hunger by just denying ourselves food so that, again, we would just kind of know on a very real, personal level what it was like to experience hunger. So we got there Friday night, remained there until Sunday at 6 p.m. without eating anything and only drinking water. So Friday night wasn't too bad. 
most of us kind of just stuffed ourselves. You know, it started at 6 o'clock, and so you kind of went somewhere at 5 o'clock, and you just stuffed yourself with as much food as you could possibly uh, get down. And so, you know, Friday night, most of us got there, and we really didn't want anything more to eat anyway. And so, you know, Saturday morning, you know, I remember it kind of comes and it goes without too many problems. Saturday afternoon, I'm kind of starting to think about food more and more trying to remember how certain foods tasted. I'm trying to just remember in my mind the aroma of of just favorite uh, foods. By Saturday night, I am just like feeling really weak. I had no energy. I'm kind of, you know, uh, getting a headache. I kind of start developing this real yucky taste in my mouth. Rick would say it's toxins. Your body's detoxing. It was. Uh, I didn't know that, but it was just kind of this yucky taste in my mouth. And most everybody by this point, we're just laying around, not doing anything. Sunday morning, I am seeing elephants in the room. I, I, I just got to that point. I couldn't even remember what food smelled or tasted like. None of the youth wanted to go to church because we just felt like if we just went up church, we were just going to lay in the pews, just counting down the hours until this whole experience was over. Plus, we knew in the fellowship hall on Sunday mornings, they always had like, you know, refreshments, you know, donuts and cookies. So we knew we had to stay uh, away from there or it would not be pretty. So finally, six o'clock Sunday night arrives and we break this fast with what they called a church-wide potluck. It really should have been called a good luck instead of a potluck because if you happen to end up at the end of the line, good luck getting any food. Now, I just share this story with you, you know, just about my experience with fasting or what I thought was fasting. And that experience for me was just way back in junior high school because it really tainted, it really distorted, and it greatly discouraged me from ever wanting to do that again. So when I became a Christian in college and I kind of, you know, started really, you know, learning more about what the Christian faith was all about, um, you know, I kind of started reading books from other great missionaries and, and pastors and, and saints and I started reading about this whole thing about spiritual, dement- or, uh, spiritual disciplines and then I ran across this topic of fasting, And immediately, my mind just goes back to that experience in junior high school. And um, my mind just began to be flooded with these very negative memories of that experience. And I just completely dismissed this idea of fasting as something that was really more for just spiritually mature people, you know, like Jesus, the Apostle Paul, other great saints, but not for me. So that was kind of my initial experience with fasting. Now, for the sake of clarity and simplification, when I refer to fasting, I'm limiting the scope of my discussion to the fasting of food. I realize there are many other types of fasts that people go through. Daniel fast. People will fast from things like television. If I'm going to fast from my computer, those are fine. But when the Bible speaks 
and refers to fasting, uh, it usually involves the fasting of food or at least limiting uh, yourself to certain types of food like in the Daniel fast. Again, I say all of this because I'm guessing if any of you have ever tried fasting and did so with not a lot of understanding about what true biblical fasting is, chances are not only did you have a very bad experience with it, but you're also reacting out of that negative experience, and it causes you really to avoid the subject or the experience of fasting altogether. So I just want you to know, from a personal experience, how some of you may be feeling about the subject of fasting. And so I want to just share with you some insights uh, I've gained just, you know, uh, over uh, the course of, uh, of, of engaging in that spiritual discipline uh, of fasting. The first insight I learned um, was the fear of fasting is far worse than fasting itself. That is so true. The fear of fasting is far worse than fasting itself. Again, this was a huge hurdle for me. I didn't realize how much fear that initial experience back there in junior high um, created in me. And let me be clear, that was not biblical fasting, okay? That was starvation, big difference. So that experience of fasting, starvation, it really injected into me um, a fear in the spiritual discipline of fasting. And that fear really kept me from engaging or pursuing true biblical fasting. So from time to time, just out of guilt, a sense of religious duty, I would try to fast for one day. And now I could, I could get you know, by with one meal. Uh, I could you know, get to maybe two meals if I'm riding a spiritual high. But I could just never get to the completion of a, of a one-day fast. Somewhere in between the first and second fasted meal, what often happened for me was fear, anxiety, this obsession with food would kind of just begin to, to manifest. Fear would manifest itself, uh, again, in ways like fear of feeling hungry, the fear of getting dizzy, uh, lightheaded or falling, or the fear of my body reacting poorly, and you know, that, that, that bad taste in your mouth, that you know, I'm gonna get sick, and so this obsession with food would be that I would just think about it nonstop, and the only way to get the thoughts to stop was I just would go to the refrigerator, open it, and start eating. So all of this would just rise up in me, and it really prevented me uh, from being able to complete a 24-hour fast. Let me just share with you one of the key spiritual principles that I was able to apply that really helped me to kind of confront and overcome all of this, and it's found in Isaiah 58, beginning in verse 6. And here God's speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he is talking about here the kind of fast that pleases God. Now, because there's a fast that pleases God, there are also fasts that do not please God. Um, Jesus said, you know, those are the ones that you kind of walk around and you make it known by your face or the way, you know, you're kind of carrying yourself. You want everybody to know and you're broadcasting to everybody, I'm fasting. Um, and, and Jesus said, there's no reward in that. So there are types of, of ways you can fast that are, they're just, it's a waste of time. 
Um, again, it's just it's starvation. Um, but here he says, he's describing in Isaiah 58, this is the kind of fast that pleases God. Uh, is this not the fast which I choose, God speaking here, to loosen the bonds of wickedness? to undo the bands of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. That really got my attention. Now the loosening of the bonds of wickedness are not just those bonds of wickedness that may be put upon us by others, but they can also be bonds of wickedness we have placed ourselves under fear, anxiety, anything that would keep us from being obedient to the word of God. It is a bond of wickedness. It is a form of yoke. It's a, it's a form of a yoke. And Isaiah says, this is how you break or you loosen that bond. And so I realize as I'm looking at this verse in Isaiah 58, 6, I had a bond of wickedness. I had a yoke of fear, anxiety. There were other yokes that were preventing me from truly experiencing the fast that God had chosen. So one day I decided I was going to try fasting the whole day. And what I did was I just began to pray and I asked God, God, would you break off of me this fear, this anxiety, that uh, this obsession with food that I had? It was just a very simple prayer because I knew from my past experience, if I try fasting again, that fear, that anxiety, that obsession with food, it's all going to come back. And simply as I approached into this fast, I realized that is a, that, that's a bond of wickedness. That is a yoke that was preventing me from doing what I felt God was calling me to do. So I just said, God, would you break that bond? Would you break that yoke of fear over me. Following that prayer, I fasted a whole 24-hour period and did not have one time of fear, anxiety. I had no obsession with food. And following that time, I remember looking at that thinking, wow, that wasn't so bad. So now anytime I fast, when any of those old thoughts of fear, the anxiety, the obsession with food come, I just say, God, that is a bond of wickedness. That is a yoke. Just break that off. So the fear of fasting was far worse for me than the actual discipline of fasting itself. As a matter of fact, let me give you one of the spiritual benefits of fasting. If you're struggling with addictions, okay, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, sexual addiction, food addiction, shopping addiction, yes, that can be an addiction, Whatever the addiction may be, it is a bond of wickedness. That addiction is a yoke that biblical fasting can and will break off of you. Isaiah is very clear that fasting, abstaining from food for a period, a specified period of time, is one of the ways that God has designed. And again, you have to choose to do it. God is not going to force you. You have to voluntarily say, I'm going to place myself in this area of godly weakness. And I'm going to do it uh, because 
God has chosen, this is one of the ways in which he is going to break those bonds of wickedness, that he's going to free me uh, from the yokes uh, that, that want to imprison me. So if you're struggling with any kind of addiction, you simply come to God, ask him to lead you, uh, to guide you in this discipline of fasting for the purpose of breaking and loosening the bonds of wickedness over your life. As a matter of fact, when I fast, usually one of the things I will ask is, God, just search my heart. And God, if there's any area of wickedness or yoke that just needs to be broken off, it can be pride, it can be arrogance, it can be just self-centeredness, self-independence. Uh, again, any area, God, uh, where, where you see wickedness, where there is a, a, a yoke, uh, God, would you just reveal that to my heart? Um, there are times where I, I'll, you know, undergo a fasting, and, and I'll just search God. And, and one time, God brought to, to my heart that I was being very, very judgmental uh, about people. Um, I could just look at total strangers and just based on their appearance, um, I would just begin to have very unloving, judgmental thoughts toward them. And so, and so God revealed that to my heart. I knew that that was wrong. I knew that was not of him. That was a yoke over me that needed to be broken. And so as God revealed that, as I went into that time of fasting, I just asked God, God, would you break that off of me? Um, and so it's these kinds of things, again, that can get in the way of our relationship with God and really interrupt the intimate relationship he desires to have with us. So again, it's important to understand how fasting can benefit us in removing uh, those barriers to intimacy um, with God. So again, um, the best book uh, I can recommend for you on, on fasting uh, is a book by Mike Bickle. Um, and do you remember what that's called, Candy? I meant to grab that tonight, and I totally forgot. Um, but it's, uh, it's a book on fasting, and it is the best book I've ever read on fasting. There are times when I'm fasting, I will read portions, or I'll just go through um, that book, because it just really... Uh, it prepares my heart, it positions me, it keeps me positioned, it really keeps me focused on God's purpose, what God is wanting to do, um, I'm in that. Um, so that first type of godly weakness we need to embrace is voluntary weakness. The second type of weakness we need to embrace is the opposite, which is involuntary weakness. And I would define those, those are the the. the tribulations, that's the persecution, the trials that we may go through because of our faith in Christ. Um, maybe the trials and tribulations that may come upon you uh, because of your witness for Jesus Christ. Voluntary weaknesses are those weaknesses that we choose to embrace, to take upon ourselves. Whereas involuntary weakness are those we do not choose, but rather those that are placed upon us, those that are inflicted upon us that we do not choose. But again, they are thrust upon us by others. Uh, again, we didn't ask for it. Um, 
We nonetheless embrace it and we receive it, again, as one of the ways that God has chosen to work, uh, to release his power, his presence, strength, and blessing uh, in our lives, again, despite its original intent. Paul viewed, again, if you go back and look at uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul kind of saw that thorn in the flesh. He recognized that as an involuntary weakness. I don't want it. God, would you remove this? And he says there three times, I ask God, get rid of this. I don't want this. So Paul viewed that thorn in the flesh. This is involuntary. I don't embrace this. As a matter of fact, uh, he asked three times, would you just remove this thorn, this messenger of Satan? Would you get rid of these people who are bringing insult and persecution, trials and tribulations? So Paul just says, remove it, and God tells him, embrace it. Take it upon yourself, because in your weakness, I'm going to show up on your behalf as strong. This is the same idea Jesus conveys in his teachings, Matthew 5.10. Look at what Jesus says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is involuntary. When you embrace, when you take the position of weakness that comes with persecution that is inflicted upon us by others for the sake of righteousness, the Bible says you are going to be blessed. Great is your reward in heaven. We didn't ask to be persecuted or insulted. We didn't want it. We didn't seek it out. But when persecution, insult comes and is put upon us, rather than retaliate or return insult for insult, we embrace it as a means, as a pathway, as a channel of God's power, strength, presence, and blessing. It just begins to break forth over our lives. So again, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, when we take and we just embrace and position ourselves in that godly weakness. Again, what you're doing is you're positioning yourself to receive God's power, presence, strength, and blessing. Let me just finish up with this scripture here, and then we're going to pick it up here uh, next time. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 47, Jesus says this. He says, you've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. Someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands you carry his gear for a mile, carry it for two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. We've got to choose that. 
We have to choose to love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You gotta choose to do that. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt, uh, corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are only kind to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans can do that. Again, all the opportunities here that Jesus is pointing out in this teaching where we can choose to retaliate, to slap back, sue back, hate your enemies, or we can choose to offer the other cheek, give your coat, love your enemy, and pray for those who persecute you. We can take matters into our own hands, or we can embrace both voluntary, involuntary, godly weakness, and in doing that, we know As Paul said, when you do that, the power of Christ dwells in us. That's what we're after. That is that heart connection. And like I said, when our hearts connect with his hearts, intimacy naturally flows from that. It is a natural byproduct. Let's pray. Father, we just come tonight. Lord, I know I've given a lot of information here, God. Just pray that you'll use it as seed upon the hearts of the people here tonight. And God, as we look at, again, just embracing godly weakness, and Lord, we look at, again, those voluntary ways, and as we've talked about prayer and the giving of our resources, our finances, God, as we've talked about fasting, God, I pray, Lord, that you would use those, again, just to challenge our hearts, And God, if there's any area that maybe you're calling or drawing us to position ourselves in that place of godly weakness, Lord, I just pray that we would just again respond, that God, we would choose. Again, God, you're deliberate in how you've structured the kingdom to work. And God, we want to cooperate with that tonight. We want to position ourselves in a way, God, that that your power, your presence, your blessing will just flow through us, that it will rest upon our lives. And so, God, I just pray even in those involuntary ways, God, where things are happening that we haven't chosen, that, God, we don't want. God, again, would you just help us position ourselves before you, God, in a way that you can take the involuntary insults and distresses, the trials, the persecutions, the tribulations, God, that you would take those and God, you would turn those and use them as a blessing, that the power of Christ would rest upon and dwell in us. So again, God, I just pray as we go forth from this place, God, that you would, again, just use this as seed that would just be planted in our hearts. And God, as you would just, again, water and tend that seed, God, that it would just begin to take root and to grow and to produce great fruit in our lives. So God, I just pray, Lord, that you'll, again, just position us before you, that, God, our hearts can connect with your heart 
And that God, out of that, God, we would just be drawn into a deeper place of intimacy. God, that we would experience eternal life. And that is to know you and to know your son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God, that is our heart's cry tonight. And God, just pray, Lord, that you would just again establish your perfect leadership over our lives tonight. And that God, in that perfect leadership, God, that you'll lead us, that you'll guide us in ways, God, that we can bless you, that we can honor you, God, that we can be a blessing to others as well. And we just thank you for all of this. And God, I just pray your blessing would rest upon each one here tonight. And God, we are so thankful for the blessings that you have given to us. God, make us good, wise, and faithful stewards of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.